Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. This man needs no introduction. He started a tiny little computer company out of his dorm room, and it just kept growing from there. Michael Dell from Dell Computers. Enjoy. Michael Dell, author of Play Nice But Win, a CEO's journey from founder to leader. And also you may have heard of a small little company he named after himself because he's got a huge ego. It's called Dell Computer. Michael, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing great, James. Great to be with you. Michael, this book is like not only a book about entrepreneurship, but I feel like it's a how-to on deal-making. You went through so much with all sorts of hedge fund activist battles with Dell through the years. But I really want to start with the beginning and then go to the end also, because I'm curious about some things. I'm always fascinated by your iconic story of how you started. You're literally the college student entrepreneur's dream come true. Build shit in your dorm room and make a billion dollars doing it. So like, how did it all start? I was a freshman at the University of Texas. It was kind of the dawn of the microprocessor age. IBM had introduced the first PC in 1981. It was kind of 1983 when I went off to college. And the markups on the PC relative to the cost of the components were really high. So like an IBM PC, if I remember correctly from back then, was something like two or $3,000. Yeah, it was it was about three thousand dollars, and you know when I took it apart, it looked to me like it was five hundred dollars worth of parts. So why did you take it apart? That's unusual thing number one. I've been doing that since I was a little kid. You can't understand things unless you take them apart, and so I would always take things apart. So I took it apart, and you know I was interested in math and science and physics and electronics and all that stuff as a kid. Uh, also interested in business and economics and figuring out how to make some money. So this $500 worth of parts they were selling for $3,000 kind of seemed like a criminal enterprise. So I started upgrading more basic versions of the PC, started doing that in my dorm room. That's actually how the company started by making kits to upgrade the original IBM PC to add hard drives, and memory onto the PC. And your initial customers were just like parents of your friends or who, how did it amass to be enough customers that you thought to yourself, 
whoa, I could make some money doing this. Interestingly, it, it was not the students. You know, the students were not interested in having computers <laughs> at, at that time, at least not the students that, that I was I was hanging around. So, um, it was it it was um, you know doctors' offices, lawyers' offices, small businesses. How'd they hear about you? Well, I started running little tiny ads, like in, you know, in the classified section of the local paper. And the other thing that was interesting was, we, you know, I was in Austin, which is the state capital, and turns out about two or three blocks away from my dorm room was the state government office where they would issue all the requests for bids for the state. And so I would, you know, ride my bike over there and literally get the pieces of paper for all the things the state wanted bids on. And I would just start bidding on these things. And I won a bunch of them. Like what was an example? Give an example bid that you won. It would be like, you know, 10 upgrade cards for, for IBM PCs or, you know, three computers with monitors and that sort of thing. So I was selling to the state. I was selling to small businesses and it got up to about $80,000 a month when I was in my dorm room and I thought, hey, you know, if I got an office, maybe I could 10 exit. I'm always just curious about that first moment when you thought to yourself, 80,000 a month. You might've thought to yourself, when I was doing a paper route, I was making $15 a week and now I'm making 80,000 a month and whatever the profits were. Good point. That's revenue, not profit. Right. But still you had money. Were you thinking to yourself, this is going to be my job after college? Or were you thinking this is going to be a big business? Also, did people, did other students know you were making this kind of money? And I know I'm kind of focusing on this. It's almost like I feel funny asking these questions, but they're honestly the things I'm really curious about. It was pretty incremental and step-by-step. Step. I wasn't out kind of advertising how well I was doing to my friends or roommate or roommates. Yeah. I mean, some of them might've had a little bit of a sense cause I, I, you know, hired some of them to help out from time to time, but it just seemed like a great opportunity too big to pass up. And, you know, where I went to school, university of Texas in Austin, you know, you could, take a semester off and go back to college. So I convinced my parents that would be okay. And they were unhappy about it. Your mom was crying. Oh, they were, they were super unhappy in the world that they came from giving up the opportunity for a high quality education was like the most disastrous decision any person could make. What do they want you to be? A doctor. You know, like my, my father's a doctor, my older brother's a doctor, we got a bunch of cousins that are doctors, so I was supposed to be a doctor. You tried for a little bit to heed their warnings or concerns or fears, but it just kept pulling you back in, so to speak. In 1983, I was kind of, you know, doing this while I was going to school, and my parents heard about it, and they became progressively more and more concerned about it. it. You know, at one point we had a, kind of an intervention, which I talk about in the book, and they yeah. they made me commit to stopping this and focusing on my studies, 
which I did for about 10 days. And it was kind of in the, in those 10 days that I decided that, you know, this wasn't just a fun little thing I was doing on the side to earn a couple of extra bucks. It was actually pulling me in, in a much bigger way. It was what I was passionate about, what I was excited about. I saw this great opportunity. So it's, it's interesting. It's almost like the struggle with your parents was a way to inform you of what you were truly passionate about. For sure. I would say if my parents had not intervened, I might've just kept it as kind of a little hobby thing and kept, kept going to school. I mean, I don't know, but it's very possible. Well, what would like, if a young person is listening to this and they're getting pressures from either parents or professors or friends, how do you maybe think about those pressures to find what's right for you as opposed to just, I mean, you did cave in a little bit, right? You went cold Turkey, as you put it in the book on computers for 10 whole days, but still there must be some way to navigate all the disparate elements that try to persuade us that their way is the right way. And I'm, I'm not, they, and they do it with the best of intentions, but like you found your way through that maze. How do other people do it? How would you suggest other people do it? I think everybody's got to find their own way, maybe a little differently. Um, I do get occasionally angry letters from parents, you know, because I'm a bad example because I dropped out of college. But uh, <laughs> look, I think I think you have to risk adjust the, 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 the decision. All right. Uh, I was in a situation where I saw tons of upside and the downside was I just go back to college. Right. So, you know, and if you got nothing, you got nothing to lose. Um, so where are you in, in that process and, you know, how big of a risk, you know, really is it? And I think college was a lot different then than now in the sense that it was cheaper then. I mean, co the cost of college and tuition has gone up. Faster it was, than it was very cheap. It was, it was like 500, four, four or $500 a semester or something like that. It was insanely uh, great value. Right now, kids who want to be entrepreneurs after college, they sometimes get into one or $200,000 amount of debt is, and I'm not asking you to make a huge stance here, but is college maybe not the same choice now that it was that, and this is not a podcast about college or anything. I'm just curious, you know, is, is the decision-making about going to college and getting into that kind of debt must, must be different now. Well, certainly if, even adjusted for, for inflation or anything else, it's, it's, it's quite a bit more money. Um, so you, you, you would be right about that. I mean, I, I certainly can't give generic advice about should people go to college or not go to college. Right. I think you can, but you're reluctant to, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll probably, I'll probably reluctant to. <laughs> uh, so as you were building the business, you know, there were other well-known entrepreneurs building their businesses and, and Malcolm Gladwell famously all sort of categorized you, Bill Gates, Steve jobs as being born around the same time. You know, it, 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 he was making the argument to some extent that the computer industry, a lot of the entrepreneurs would have been entrepreneurs probably no matter what had the brains, the instincts, the guts, but with the computer age, everybody was sort of at the right place at the right time. in those early eighties when there was a huge markups and computers were, the young, young kids were, were getting into it. 18 year olds, 19 year olds, 20 year olds. You all started businesses, you know, Microsoft, Apple, other companies. 
and you all dropped out of college and had similar experiences. When did you first start interacting like with the Bill Gates and Steve Jobs of the world? Like when did you buy the, uh, you know, Windows DOS for MS-DOS for, for the Dell computers? So Bill and Steve were about 10 years older. I went and saw Steve in 1980 when I was in high school. He came to Houston and gave a, gave a talk you know, at like the Apple user group and, um, you know, and, and then, uh, met him, um, in 1985, uh, the year after I'd started the business, got to know him sort of during his exile period, uh, a, a, a bit more, um, when he was, when he was doing next and the next operating system and trying to get us to license the, the next operating system. And Bill, um, yeah, it was early because you couldn't, when, when we started building our own PCs, which was the year after we started, or I started, uh, uh, 1985, yep, we, we, we licensed, uh, it wasn't Windows, it was, it was DOS, right? Yeah. And, and, uh, and so we would work with Microsoft, worked with Bill, you know, from, from the start. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, that initial 
when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. You know, so you were looking for an operating system. A lot of the IBM PCs and and the family were obviously going with MS-DOS. Were there really any other choices at that time or was MS-DOS kind of what you did. If you wanted to make an IBM compatible, it, it was MS-DOS. You know, there was CPM, which was another operating system. Um, you know, if you wanted to build a more powerful, 
you know, workstation or server. You would use Unix, which you licensed from AT&T at the time. Uh, but yeah, for, for an IBM compatible PC, it was certainly, you know, uh, MS-DOS. And then when did you decide to start getting into other computer appliances like, you know, storage and, and larger, you know, more enterprise ready computers? Like at, at what point did you decide, okay, consumer is not enough. We need to go, go big or go out. So interestingly, um, you know, really from the first, uh, days of the company, most of our revenue was, was not from consumers. It was from, it was from other businesses. And, and uh, even in the first year, I mean, we were selling to, you know, uh, local businesses and, and, and then national businesses. And, uh, so, it, you know, it, it really, uh, you know, was like an 80, 20, like 80% business to business and, and, you know, 20% business to consumer. And then as we got into, you know, the late eighties, we tried to get into the server business. Uh, but you know, we, 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 we were too early, you know, didn't, didn't quite have the right product market fit to hit it, but you know, we came back after it, you know, in the mid nineties, but business customers kind of from the beginning, were the the main driver and and then, and then we started expanding uh internationally you know with the uk and then across europe and then over to to asia and latin america yeah and then uh you decided to go public which is a very uh you know a good the book is a fascinating story of of wall street also and kind of the characters you meet on wall street are very different than your customers <laughs> And they're very different than shareholders. These are some of these people are out for blood when they aim at you. <laughs> and you, it's a very riveting story how um, later on when you were public, various activist hedge funds, including Carl Icahn, didn't either didn't like you or just felt there was some opportunity for themselves to, to make money. And it sounded like that was very personally difficult for you. Like they didn't want you to be CEO. They had lost faith and they ostensibly had lost faith in the company and were fighting you for it. Like, how did that come about? I mean, you describe in the book, but um, I'm asking the story. So, um, you know, the, the company through 2010, 2012 was really evolving itself in, in new ways. And we were investing heavily in software and services and cloud and data center, you know, all kinds of new capabilities. And it was expensive, right? We were acquiring companies, we were building R&D. And as we did that, you know, it, it depressed our earnings. And we were, we were thinking about the business, you know, uh, a bit longer term, but the shareholders weren't. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the business was still largely thought of as a PC business, even though we had a pretty meaningful server and data center and and other you know kind of software and services businesses so the result of that was that the stock kind of went down right <laughs> and um at at some point it got to a price where it was like wow we should just you know uh, do a massive share buyback we should buy back all the shares 
and go private and really accelerate the, the, this transition that we're on and go faster. You know, if the shareholders don't really like what we're doing, let's give them a significant premium on the price. And so they get paid for uh, some, uh, you know, they, they, they get paid some of what they would potentially get if we were successful, but they don't take on any of the risk. And so we started that process and, uh, you know, after it was started, uh, Icon, um, you know, he, he, he didn't own any shares before that process. He sort of read through the documents and said, oh, wow, there's a really odd voting standard here. And I can, if I do this and that, and the other thing I can get in there. And really what he was angling for was to be bought out at an even higher price. And so there was a, you know, pretty epic battle, uh, you know, <laughs> went on for seven or eight months and, you know, media covered it, uh, you know, extensively. There were, there were, you know, tons and tons of stories, you know, uh, almost every day about, about the battle. And, uh, ultimately we, we got through that and, uh, you know, got, you know, got to the other side, but yeah, I mean, there were definitely some dark moments and, uh, you know, uh, icon is, is this guy who would pretty much say anything, uh, you know, I mean, like untruthful stuff, definitely manipulative. And, and basically it's, it's, it's the green male tactic, uh, that, that, uh, you know, he, he's, he's been, he's been known for. I once read that he would schedule his negotiations in the evenings and he would sleep all day knowing that the people he was going to be negotiating with were working all day. So they would be tired and a little bit drained and not as mentally acute while he would be just waking up and fresh and, and ready to negotiate. So that was, he had a, a, a toolbox of strategies like that. Yeah. And, and the book opens with, with a, with a fairly dramatic story about, you know, uh, me, uh, going to see him at his, at his, uh, at his apartment in New York city. And, um, you know, I ultimately figured out that he basically didn't know anything about our company, didn't know whether we made, you know, French fries or nuclear reactors, didn't really care. And it, it was just a big poker game to him. You know, but it, but it is interesting. Like I look at companies like Dell and you were there every step of the way through from the beginning of the PC era, of course, till now. And I always wonder why did it take new people to develop a search engine like a Google or a Yahoo or an Amazon or why, why did, didn't any of those first initial computer companies innovate in that direction when the internet was uh, first got mainstream like why did it require new blood to to start these companies like no there's no major internet brand uh that was started internally at a large computer company yeah it's a great question you know i think i think there's probably something about you know uh uh single purpose and and focus there's certainly plenty of projects and skunk works and everybody knew about the internet and there were interesting things going on but for the real breakout successes i mean i think it's 100 percent focus 
with a kind of passionate leader, entrepreneur, you don't tend to see those things coming inside large organizations. But like to define focus, because even Dell from the beginning, like you said, was you were doing consumer, you were doing enterprise, you're doing servers, you know, now you do storage and, and other, you do everything in the hardware space, basically. Um, you know, and Amazon's a good example of their sort of focus, but it's not just books. Then it became closed. Then it became, uh, uh, AWS and cloud services and all these other things. Like people scale in different ways. And so, so define what does focus mean? Cause I feel like it could be wrongly used as well by entrepreneurs. Yeah. I mean, I think when, a, when a, when a business is, is starting, uh, you know, it's, it's really got to hone in on, on something that that's going to, that's going to stick and hit, uh, and, and be super successful. And so that, you know, requires a kind of myomanonical, uh, you know, uh, just in, in intense passion to understand it and to nail that one thing. And, um, you know, that's, that's a pretty powerful force. Now, of course, most of those companies fail, right? <laughs> uh, yes. But, you know, right. We, it, it's sort of a, what's a, a selection bias. We only know the ones that succeeded, not the thousands that failed. Yeah. And, and of course there were plenty of search engines, you know, before Google, et cetera. Yeah. What was the first search engine that you used? Uh, would have been, would have been like Alta Vista, you know, um, guess then you know then yahoo i mean i i, I remember you know the the first we had the internet back in the 80s what we didn't have was the world wide web and then we had um you know the mosaic browser it, originally it, you couldn't even run it on windows you had to have a unix machine and yeah. so i'd set that up and you know we were enthralled with with the world wide web because it was a fantastic way for us to, you know, display our products and connect with the customer. Cause you know, we, we were in the business of like uh, sending out all these catalogs and getting people to call us on the phone. And now it was like, wow, you could put all this on this website and then people would click and buy. It was like a dream, you know? So, so we, we jumped all over that and, Obviously, it was a massive accelerator to growth, you know, from kind of the mid 90s, uh, you know, forward. Also available today is part two. Michael Dell from Dell Computers talks about what happened when he tried negotiating with Steve Jobs and what does the future hold, including the future of Bitcoin. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.